the, the passage um, that we're looking at today is not really thought of as often as a, uh, a Christmas passage. Uh, you know, it's um, the last three weeks we've been focusing on, on some of the passages that are more traditionally associated with uh, Christmas. In fact, the, um, the first uh, previous three sermons all came from Luke chapter 2. Uh, very uh, familiar. Today, we're not even going to be in the Gospels, uh, so we're way outside of the passages that we might normally associate with that. Let's pray, and then we're going to turn to the passage we're going to look at this morning, and uh, I think you'll see how it does indeed fit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us, and all, all, of, your, all of your word is, um, is meant for, for our direction, for our guidance, for our benefit, for uh, to, to bring us before you, to help us understand more of who you are, to help us know you even better. I pray that you would use the passage we're looking at this morning to help us understand more of your love. We can get some really messed up ideas of what love is. We can uh, get some terrible misunderstandings, which, which would even tend to lead us astray in our relationship with you, and that's not what we want to do. What we want to do is be drawn closer. What we want to be do is be drawn uh, more into your heart and into your being. So use your word uh, to guide us toward that. Help what I say to lift you up and to um, work in conjunction, work well, be words really from you and the Holy Spirit that would help people to see you uh, and your glory, your honor, and to understand your love more, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to turn to, thank you, appreciate it. Beak. We're going to turn to uh, we're going to turn to John chapter four. Um, it's on page one thousand one hundred twenty-one in the Pew Bible. If uh, you're using that, if you're uh, using something else, go ahead and, and get to that first John, not the Gospel of John. Uh, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the rest of the you got the rest of the New Testament. If you hit the Revelation and back up a little bit, you'll get to First John. That's where we're at. Uh, we're looking at embracing everlasting love today. John has a very strong emphasis on love in his Gospels as well as in his letters. I think you'll see that as we go through this and as we read the passage. You'll also notice John mentions uh, Jesus coming to Earth. That's the birth we celebrate here at Christmas time. But begin. I'm going to start in verse seven. A little bit longer passage, but follow along as we read. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 13, now this is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us assurance. He has given his assurance to us from his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses or whoever acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this, 
Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, for we are his, for, for we are as he is in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother. Now, we're not going to come near pulling everything out of this. As I was working on this sermon, I thought, man, I should preach a series through First John. Uh, you know, but so anyway, what we're going to do, we're going to try to grasp... Um, this whole reality, really, of everlasting love and what it means, I believe it comes through very clearly in these verses. Now, in this section, it starts out with three very clear statements in verse 7. If you look at verse 7 there, we're told to love one another. We're told that love is from God. And we are told that those who have a relationship with Jesus should be characterized by love. You know, that if you have a relationship with him, you should be, you know, you should be characterized by love. The last phrase tells us, you know, that our connection, uh, our connection to love is evidence of our relationship and our connection with God. That when that love evidences the fact that we have a connection with God, that the fact that we, you know, have this relationship with Him. Now we're going to get into that a little bit more in a minute here, but uh, th- now this just doesn't mean that every loving person has a relationship with God. You need to understand that. It does not mean that every loving person has a relationship with God. Don't be confused about the need for a relationship with Christ. There is a, a, you know, every person on earth has a need for a relationship with Christ. What he's talking about here is that when somebody has a relationship with Christ, they, they, they you know, love is, they become a more loving person. You know, that's, that's what it is. They, they become more loving. You know, if you have a relationship with Christ, you're more loving. It doesn't mean that because someone's loving that they have a relationship with Christ. It doesn't go backwards. It, it's the, the transformation that happens within us from that relationship with Christ should make us a more loving person. Now, love, true love, proper love, everlasting love, it comes from God. It doesn't come from our situation. It doesn't come from the people in our lives. Uh, now, this love often comes through people. You know, it comes through people, but it comes from God. And there's a difference there. There's a huge difference. Everlasting love comes from God. It doesn't come from people. It may be through them, but not, not from them. Now, you may be aware that the love talked about here is what, you know, is agape love, what is often referred to as the highest form of love, that love in which it's the love that puts the welfare of others first. It doesn't, it, it, it's not, it's not looking at self at all. This is a type of love that's simply looking out and looking at, looking at others and what they do without any regard for feeling. You see, we always tie up love with feeling that we say if, you know, if we're going to love somebody that we have to, you know, we have to feel this love. But remember, uh, God told us to love our enemies. You do have feelings toward the enemy, but it's not feelings we associate with love. In fact, it's often quite the opposite. So, I mean, this shows you that what he's talking about when he's talking about, about love here, he's not talking about simply responding, you know, to our feelings. It's that choice to put others first. It's that choice not to act in a way that, 
that looks toward a response toward us, but it simply it, it, it doesn't give that, that regard. It's, it's a love for God. It's that love for God that's expressed in John 3.16. Well, uh, Pastor Stan read it earlier. For God loved the world. There's that word, love, the, the love from God. He did it in, in this way. He gave, you see, his love prompted action. His love worked for the betterment of us. It cost him plenty. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God's love prompted him to give his son for us, knowing that some people, many people, will reject him. But the fact that many people would reject him didn't stop God from taking that action of love. This is the love we celebrate at Christmas, the giving of Jesus to the earth. It's an act of God's love. Now, we may feel that we know about love, but to, to truly know love in the fullest, to truly know what, what, you know, what love is the mo- in the most complete sense, we must know God. If you're going to know love, you have to know God. Look at verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So, you know, for love to be there, it, you know, we have to know God if you're going to know love. The word know here, it's, it is, it's a knowledge that comes as an effect of an experience, uh, uh, from an engagement, from an involvement, a connection with God. It's love that comes from a relationship with Jesus, from having a relationship with Jesus. This is what he's talking about here. Now, this is really only one of three statements that John makes telling us um, what God is. And, and really, all three of these need to be taken together. We can't just take, you know, God is love and run off with that because it's a lot of error has come from that. Uh, back in his gospel, in chapter 4, verse 24, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit. It's referring here, it's referring here to, you know, to that immaterial reality of God and his presence with us here now. Why we're celebrating, why we, we look back and celebrate Jesus coming to earth, you know, God himself, God in the flesh coming to earth. The reality is we still have God's presence here with us now. Not just in this, you know, not, not just in a, in a removed sense, but in a real sense. He is spirit and he's here in spirit, you know, and, and he is in, with us now. Earlier in his letter here in 1 John, he says, now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. So we said earlier, God is spirit. Here he's saying God is light. There's absolutely no darkness in him. Now, God in, in Scripture, particularly in the context of, of 1 John here, when he's talking about light, light is associated with holiness, and darkness is associated with sin. In the beginning of, in the beginning of, of this uh, first epistle from John, he says, you know, if we, if we walk with him in the light, we walk in the light as he is in the light. And he's, he's talking about this holiness, you know, and, and God is light references that holiness. It references all things, you know, and his holiness of being. And here in verse 8 of chapter 4, he says, God is love. God is that essence, he's the embodiment, he's the source, he's the reality of love, of everlasting love, which we're looking at. And it's evidenced by, you know, other passages in John's writing, other Bible passages. God is more than love, but he is love. He's more than that, but that is part of what, you know, that, that certainly is a part of what. Love does not define the person of God. You need to understand that. He's bigger than that. 
He's more than that. Love does not define the person of God, but the person of God does define love. He defines love. Love doesn't define him, but he defines love of what love is and the reality of what it is. He is more than love, but he also defines what love is. Love gets all sorts of definitions throughout history and even now in our society. Uh, you know, love has had all sorts of definitions. This has been twisted by, by many, um, uh, even, you know, well, false teachers, false uh, Religions and everything else have twisted this whole thing of God is love. Uh, people have misused it and used this to indulge in sin. Uh, sex does not equal love. One of the one of the one of the um, problems that comes up in our you know in our society is we use we use that word love uh, synonymously with sex, and and those are two totally different things. You know, those are two totally different things, you know, and, you know, one of the things we need to teach our, our young ladies and our young men, for that matter, um, this this whole argument that, that they will hear sometimes is, you know, if you love me, you'd have sex with me. Those are two totally different things. They are totally different things. You know, the, it, biblically, you know, the, the um, sex act is is to express, you know, an intimate, deep bond and love. But those two things are not equal. And it's thrown around. We cannot use, you know, we cannot use, uh, you, you know, this. We, we, we cannot dignify immorality by calling it love. You know, we can't do that. It's, it's just, it's, it's not the same. You can't dignify sin by calling it, you know, something that God defines for us. Now, we're going to move quickly through some of these verses. Otherwise, time is going to become a real problem, and I'd rather it didn't. Uh, verse 9 and 10, uh, really somewhat kind of an expansion of John 3.16, really. I mean, when you look at those verses, we looked at John 3.16 earlier, but verses 9 and 10 is talking about the, the birth of Jesus. It brought love into this world in a way that the world has never known before. It's, you know, brought it down in a way that the world has not seen, has not experienced before that, and why we can experience and share the love. A fuller expression of that love awaits his return, really, then it's part of the Advent thing. It's reminding us that we live in expectation of Jesus coming again. We celebrate his first coming. We live in expectation of his coming again. And in that way, you know, again, love is going to be seen in a much fuller way. Now, we need to take a minute to look at the wording of verse 10. It says, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he sent, sent, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is not a word that we use very often. Um, in fact, you've probably never used that word, um, you know, outside of a religious discussion, but it's a good word. It says a lot. Uh, we sometimes throw out um, good words and, re and religious words um, because, you know, we say, well, people can't understand them. You know what? I can't, I, I didn't understand what basal cell carcinoma was until the doctor explained it to me. But when the doctor uses that word and when, you know, when you talk to a doctor and you say that phrase to him, bam, it translates tons of information to them. 
I don't want my doctor to look at me, you know, and there's a tumor, and he says, well, that's, that's a nasty bump. <laughs> kind of, that's a, you better get that nasty bump taken care of. What's he got? Well, it's a nasty bump. I, no, you know, see, we, in, in medical stuff, you know, we use those when we get used to it. We need to get used to it in religious stuff, too. So when he talks about, you know, he's talking about uh, propitiation here, uh, you know, some, ter- some of your translations have atoning sacrifice, Instead of propitiation, it says, you know, that he came as atoning sacrifice. Atoning sacrifice is really only part of the picture. Uh, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that satisfies, you know, he's that satisfying offering. Uh, this is what it, it, it's, you know, more than just an atoning sacrifice. It's a, a satisfying offering. It satisfies the wrath of God against our sin. He's a holy God, and he took our sin on himself at the cross, uh, you know, he didn't, Jesus didn't avert God's wrath. You know, he didn't avert God's wrath. He satisfied it. He quenched it. The sin is gone. You see, the sin is gone in Christ and the wrath is gone as well. There's the picture of propitiation. It's that atoning sacrifice where the sin is gone, but the wrath of God is gone as well. So, you know, towards our sin for those in a relationship with Christ. What he's talking about here is this is what happens for those in a relationship with Christ. You know, we, we will stand before the judgment seat of God, but not, not to be, not, not for condemnation. You see, that wrath has been satisfied there. We need to understand Jesus' death was not an accident. It was an appointment. Not an accident but an appointment. He had an appointment with that cross. It wasn't just that things had gone bad and by golly, you know, sure wish this would have worked out and it didn't because he died. This is the, this was the attitude, the thinking of his disciples at the time, at the time as they're watching it. I am so grateful that I get to live in a time in history where I can look back and have the benefit of the hindsight is, you know, 2020 or a lot closer at any rate to to good sight. And we can look back and we can see how the pieces and the parts fit together a little bit more. When we're looking forward, it's it's hard. These guys were living in the midst of it. And, you know, it's it would have been extremely difficult to live in the midst of it. And you think he's going to be the Messiah. You have these ideas and thoughts of what the Messiah would do and who he is. And Jesus seemed to be fitting those. And all of a sudden, he's dead on the cross. And they thought, man... This just didn't work out how we thought it would. And you, you can tell because what they do, they all fled. They all ran because this just didn't work out how we thought it was going to work out, you see. It wasn't an accident. It was an appointment. God knew exactly what was going to happen. This is something that, that God wanted to happen, you know, that God knew was going to be, was going to be coming along there, you know. He didn't die as a weak martyr. He died as a mighty conqueror. It wasn't a step backward. It was a huge step forward and crushed the head of the serpent. He died a conqueror. You know, that's why John can say here, you know, that God's everlasting love towards us should then compel us to love others because God's loved, you know, he loves us in this way. Verse 11 says that we must love others. We must love us. That's a word that means, it's a word that means to owe. 
to be in debt. It's an obligation. God, because God so loved us, we have a debt to love others. God so loved us, we have this obligation, he says, to love others. We are in debt to love others. God's love in our lives, because of his love in our lives, we are obligated to love others. Now, the result of, you know, the result of, of, uh, his love in my life is evidenced by his love coming through my life to others. That's the result of his love in my life. It's evidenced because then his love comes through my life. His love in my life comes through my life to others. You know, loving others specifically, here he's talking about, you know, he says that, that, that we love one another. What he's specifically talking about here really is those who have a relationship with Jesus. Now, it's not that we don't love the others, because, again, he's called us to love our enemies. But what he's very specifically addressing here are the others who have a relationship with Jesus. It means that we're working, that we're choosing for their good without any regard for return to us. We are choosing to work for their good without that return for us. And as we love others, we experience a fuller realization of God's love in us, as he says there in verse 12. You know, we experience that fuller love in us and a fuller expression of his love through us. Now we know this because it says his spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are God's and that, that he is in us. And Romans chapter 8 addresses this as well. You know, it says the spirit himself testifies together. This isn't, this isn't working here. You know, that, that, that Romans chapter 8, pull that one up for me. Thank you. It says, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. His spirit testifies with our spirit, an important thing, that we are his children. You have that internal witness, you know, an internal confirmation, if you will. His spirit testifying to our spirit that we're his children. Now, the result is that we tell others about Jesus, specifically that we tell others about who he is and our relationship with him, the same as the shepherds did when they found out who he is, that you can't help but tell others, that when you find out who he is, you can't help but tell others, that when you, know, when, when you experience his love, it love affects you so much that you can't help but tell others. The shepherds, it says, left glorifying, praising God for what? For all that they've seen, all that, all that they saw, they saw this, and they, they didn't get it all, but what they did get they said this is something we need to tell others and they did now if we have a relationship with jesus you know then we have him with us forever this is what verse 16 tells us it said god remains in him god remains in him you know we have it forever that everlasting love he's love so we have that everlasting love from god in us now because of that love we no longer have to live in fear. And this is what he talks about. We don't have to live in fear, you know, that we will be or that we are being punished by God. As I was studying for this sermon, I came across a Bible college professor uh, who he, he surveyed his students through an essay. He gave them an essay assignment and he asked them to write what motivated their Christian behavior, what, what guided their conduct as Christians. He said over 90% of his students admitted that their conduct was mainly motivated by a fear of punishment from God. And he said, and he said the, the majority, the overwhelming majority of his students came from Christian homes. 
where they were raised, you know, with God all the time. It wasn't, you know, an outside thing. God it was, it was there, it was a part of the thing. And over 90% were motivated by, by fear of punishment from God. What a shame. As I was reading that, my fear is that some of that, 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 that is true for some of you. That you're motivated, your, your conduct, your, you know, your conduct, how you live is motivated by fear that God is waiting or continuing to punish you. Now, I grew up thinking that God was waiting for me to step out of line so he could whack me with the knobby end of the ugly stick. That's just, that was just my thinking. You know, and, and, uh, you know, that's not the way it is. One of the things that has totally changed for me when I came into a relationship with Christ, that thinking was replaced. It was replaced, you know, by an overwhelming gratitude for the grace and love of God in my life. I don't think God is waiting to punish me. I don't think God is punishing me. I remember just a great young lady we had in our church. She had two little girls, and she was in her 30s. And she got cancer. She got breast cancer. And it didn't go well. In fact, it went bad in a hurry. And I remember visiting her, you know, and uh, she said, Pastor, God is punishing me for the abortion I had before she was even a Christian. I told her, I said, Lori, that's, that's not God at all. That's not him at all. He went to the cross. He took, he took your sin, including that sin, on the cross for him. This is the love of God that he's talking about here. That took the punishment for all of those sins that you think that you should be punished for. You're correct. You should be punished for those sins. The reality is you're not because Jesus took the punishment on the cross for your sin. This is why he can say to us, this is, you know, why he can say to us that we don't, that, 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 that love, perfect love, that that love drives out fear. What he's talking about here is that, that fear of punishment. That it drives that out. We have this growing awareness of his love. All of what John wrote here is to tell us about the overwhelming, everlasting love of God that has worked in our lives, you know, and in the lives of all those who have a relationship with him. This is what he's talking about through here. That overwhelming love of God. And when we have a relationship with Jesus, as we grow in that relationship, we should come to understand more of his love and that fear of punishment. You know, the fear of punishment is replaced with gratitude for his love. Give me the next one. You know, and that's the whole thing. That fear of punishment is replaced with gratitude for his love. Look what he says in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. 
Because he first loved us, we can love perfect love. God's love drives out the fear of punishment because we know we are forgiven by the propitiation of Jesus for our sin. By the fact that he took that sin on himself and our sin is gone and the wrath of God is gone as well toward us because of that sin. It's not that he took the sin and then God says, you're getting it. You're getting it. That's not what, it, that's not at all the picture that he gives here. He tells us, you know, that, it, that it, he's removed that. God calls us to love others, specifically those in a relationship with Jesus. You know, this is what he's talking about. Again, it's not that we don't love others. What he's talking about here is that when he's talking about those one another's, he's talking about the way we relate, we relate within the body of Christ is what he's talking about here. There of all places, this love should be evident. And he tells us we need to live for the benefit of others without any regard for return. You know, and we do this out of gratitude for God. We do this out of, out of God's gratitude for his love and his grace, not out of fear that he will punish us if we don't. We do it because of the love and grace of God. This is allowing God to touch others through our life, through our living. John chapter 13, he says, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. In that same way that I have loved you, you also must, there's that word again, must, love one another. That that love has transformed you so much and changed you so much that it flows through and it flows out to others. Here in First John chapter 4, again, verse 21, he says, We have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother. Our standard, our calling should be to love others as God loves us. That should be our calling. That should be our standard here. When we have a relationship with Jesus, we become God's children. We share in his nature because we're born again of the Spirit. We share that nature. That means, you know, that what God is determines what we ought to be. You ever look at your kids and say, I don't know where you got that. The frightening thing is sometimes I look at my kids and I say, I know exactly where they got that. (laughs) We are God's children. We share and should reflect his nature. What God is is who we should be. That's what should be flowing out from us. Verse 16, he says, And we have come to know and to believe that the love of, that the love God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. His love in us changes everything. Everything. It transforms and changes all we are. I want to close by reading this passage to you again, but I'm going to read it from the Amplified Bible. It's going to be on the screen, and Caleb will flip it along as we go along. But in the Amplified Bible, I just love the way that they have put this. Beloved, let us unselfishly love and seek the best for one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves others is born of God and knows God through personal experience. 
The one who does not love has not become acquainted with God, does not and never did know him, for God is love. He is the originator of love, and it is an enduring attribute of his nature. By this, the love of God was displayed in us, in that God has sent his one and only begotten Son, the one who is truly unique, the only one of his kind into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, that is, the atoning sacrifice and the satisfying offering for our sins, fulfilling God's requirement for justice against sin and placating his wrath. Beloved, if God so loved us in this incredible way, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another with unselfish concern, God abides in us, and his love, the love that is his essence, abides in us and is completed and perfected in us. By this we know with confident assurance that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given to us his Holy Spirit. We who were with him in person have seen and testify as eyewitnesses that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses and acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know by personal observation and experience and have believed with deep, consistent faith the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides continually in him. In this union and fellowship with him, love is completed and perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, with assurance and boldness to face him, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Dread does not exist. But perfect, complete, full-grown love drives out fear because fear involves the expectation of divine punishment. So the one who is afraid of God's judgment is not perfected in love, has not grown into a sufficient understanding of God's love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates, works against his Christian brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also unselfishly love his brother and seek the best for him. Embrace God and embrace God's everlasting love.